I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And, and we're the, the sirens. sirens. Today we are talking about the movie His Girl Friday, which is a 1940 movie that stars our man, Cary Grant, and also Rosalind Russell, who is equally delicious in this movie. Um, it also... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she is. <laughs> it also features a number of supporting actors, Ralph Bellamy, uh, Clarence Kolb, Helen Mack, and Abner Bieberman. Um, the movie was directed by Howard Hawks, and it was written by Charles Leder and Ben Hiked from the play The Front Page, which was written by Ben Hiked and uh, Charles MacArthur. The play was first adapted for the screen in 1931, and the major change from in this version from the, both that previous film and the play is that the role of Hildy Johnson is, is a woman in this movie. So the plot of this movie, the basic premise, is that Hildy Johnson shows up in the office of her newspaper editor boss and ex-husband, who, whose name is Walter Burns, um, to tell him that she's quitting the newspaper vi- business and getting married again. Walter is a scheming uh, and a little bit crooked uh, newspaper man, manages to convince her to cover just one more story before she heads to Albany with her new beau, who is an insurance salesman named Bruce Baldwin. Over the course of the movie, there's fast-paced dialogue, madcap staging, lots of good telephone conversations, and plenty of commentary on local politics and reporting. I mean, that that sums it up. (laughs) I love that they made her fiancé an insurance salesman. Like, they made it, like, what is the most boring occupation that we could possibly choose? That's right. And then they were like, uh, insurance salesman. That sounds great. In Albany. <laughs> yeah. Of all places. Do you have any trivia about this movie? I do. You sort of stole one of mine. Uh, that the the play that the film was based on, the front page, the part of Hildy was male. And the legend is that Howard Hawks was hosting a dinner party when the topic of dialogue came up and he pulled out a copy of the play to show like how good the dialogue was between those characters. And he had a female guest read the opposite role. And then he thought it sounded great with her reading. So he secured the rights and um, they got the approval for the gender change. Huh. So I wonder, I mean, like, it's a significant plot point in the movie that they were married and are trying to get remarried. So I guess that is just unique to this and not part of the front page. And in the front page, I guess they were just, like, trying to get the guy not to leave the newspaper business. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen the 1931 version, and I, I am curious to see what, you know, how it plays out. Um, so maybe yeah. that's on my my next next on my watch list. Yeah, I mean, well, I'll I'll save my thoughts on the dialogue for later. <laughs> but um, so a girl Friday is an assistant who carries out a variety of chores, which yeah. is kind of disappointing definition. <laughs> but um, the name is a reference to a character named Friday in the novel Robinson Crusoe. Right. And the Girl Friday term came into popularity after this film was released. So it really, the Girl Friday didn't really exist as an expression until this movie. Yeah, um, I'll save my commentary until later. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, in, if I'm remembering Robinson Crusoe correctly, that the character of Friday was also like a 
problematic role because it was a native character who was like basically just a like servant who did anything and so yeah I mean there's other issues with that (laughs) yeah um (laughs) so the first choice to play Hildy was Jean Arthur and then there were a ton of other major actresses considered who turned it down including Carol Lombard Margaret Sullivan, Ginger Rogers, Claudette Colbert, and Irene Dunn. So uh, Rosalind Russell was not high on the list of people to play this role. That's and kind of amazing. I know, because she's just so perfect for it. And so she felt insecure about this, and she thought that Howard Hawks was treating her badly because of the fact that he didn't really want her, and uh, even said to him, you don't want me, do you? Well, you're stuck with me, so you might as well make the most of it. Oh my god. I don't know. I just, it just, I feel like this role to me is so synonymous with her that I can't even imagine any of those other actresses playing it. No. I mean, I would, I would watch any of those actresses in this role. And I feel like Carol Lombard in particular has played like similar roles. But yeah, this is totally a Rosalind Russell uh, so Russell thought that Cary Grant had more good lines than she did in the dialogue. So she hired an advertisement writer to, on the side, write more clever lines for her. What? And <laughs> because Howard Hawks allowed them to improvise, it seemed like she was just ad-libbing in the scenes. But Cary Grant figured out that she was you know, getting lines from somewhere else and then started greeting her every morning saying, what have you got today? Oh my gosh. I just think it's funny that she picked like a copywriter. (laughs) I know. To write her better lines for a a newspaper reporter. So this was one of the first movies ever made to have characters talking over each other in this style uh, to try to be more realistic and... You know, in in movies prior to this. And they say Stage Door was the first one to do it, which is on our list. Mm -hmm. Um, But prior to this, like, all the characters would say their lines alone. And it would be, you know, almost more like a play where they let the words stand alone. And I liked it. And, I mean, I loved the dialogue, obviously. But I didn't think it was difficult to understand with them talking over each other. I thought it worked well. Yeah. Um, So the normal rate of dialogue in most films is around 90 words a minute. And in this movie, the delivery is 240 words. Oh my gosh. So you can imagine what it was like to have to memorize and deliver those lines. Yeah, that's (laughs) that's a lot more lines. Um, And then this is just a little fun fact, but Cary Grant turned... 36 on the day the film was released nationally he's so young in this movie i know that's i wrote in my notes Cary grant is so young and i mean Cary grant is good at any age but just he's he's a baby (laughs) yeah well and it's interesting to see him in this movie versus like charade the very first movie that we did where he's a much older, he's 22 years older in charade than he is in this movie, and he's just, like, 
you know, it's a very different movie too, but he's, you know, he's also a different actor. So I don't even know who you bioed for this movie. Who, which actor did you pick? I picked um, Ralph Bellamy, who plays the insurance salesman, the boring insurance <laughs> salesman, Bruce Baldwin. Ralph Bellamy was an American actor whose career spanned about 62 years on stage, screen, and television. Uh, he was born in Chicago, so he's a fellow Midwesterner, um, in June 1904. He ran away from home when he was 15 and managed to get uh, into a road show that toured around with other, you know, throughout the country. He toured with that road show and with a, a couple of others um, before finally landing in New York City, where he began acting on stage, and by 1927, at the age of 23, uh, he owned his own theater company. So the rest of us are failing at life. Um, (laughs) His film career began just four years later in 1931 with the movie The Secret Six, which starred Wallace Beery and featured Gene Harlow and uh, Clark Gable. By the end of 1933, he had already, so just two years later, he had already appeared in 22 movies. Um, most notably, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, um, and also the movie Picture Snatcher, which um, starred James Cagney. He was in seven more films in 1934 alone, so he was just in you know an incredible number of movies in the 30s. And then he received an uh, Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor for his role in The Awful Truth with, with Irene Dunn and Cary Grant. And then he, he played a a very similar role in that movie to what he played in in His Girl Friday, this naive naive boyfriend competing with sophisticated Cary Grant, which aren't we all? Don't ever doesn't everybody? <laughs> Isn't that sad that that like it, you know that's your typecast role? Yes, like, you just consistently lose out to Cary Grant. Yes, you lose out to Cary Grant. We all lose out to Cary Grant. He, he appeared in a couple of horror movies in the early 1940s, um, The Wolfman and The Ghost of Frankenstein. Um, and then in the 1930s and 40s, he regularly um, socialized with a circle of friends that was affectionately known, I guess, among in Hollywood as the Irish Mafia, even though he himself was not actually Irish. It was uh, just a group of, of Hollywood A-listers who included James Cagney and Spencer Tracy and Frank Morgan, and, you know, all of whom were of Irish descent, but he himself was not. In 1949, he starred in the television noir Private Eye series, Man Against Crime, and then continued to appear, appear on television over the next, um, you know, the next several years. And he also was a regular panelist on the CBS TV uh, game show To Tell the Truth. Um, so he, like, did all kinds of things on television, But then he went back to Broadway to appear as Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the play Sunrise at Campobello. That was, like I said, one of his most famous roles. He also played the role again in the 1960 film version of the play. And then he he continued to appear on television and was very highly regarded um, in the industry among his fellow actors, in part or maybe because of that, he served as a four terms as president of the Actors' Equity from 1952 to 1964, um, and in that time continued to work on stage, television, and film. So he was a very prolific actor um, across platforms, I guess. And 
1984, he was presented with a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Screen Actors Guild, and then in 1987, he received an Honorary Academy Award for his unique service and artistry. And then he played Franklin Roosevelt for a third time in 1988 <laughs> <laughs> in the show War and Remembrance. I have it has never occurred to me that he looked like Franklin Roosevelt, but I, you know, I, I guess <laughs> he. Um, I see it a little bit, but not enough to play him that many times. Yeah, I mean that's in a life. Yeah, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of FDR. For one person. In later in his life and in his career, he he appeared on television a lot, including on LA Law. Um, but his his final performance actually was in the nineteen ninety movie Pretty Woman. What? And what yes, role was he in that? I I don't remember offhand and I didn't write it down, but he's you know, like a side character. But isn't that crazy? <laughs> yes. I love it. It makes me want to watch Pretty Woman. But so he died the following year in at the end of 1991 from a lung ailment in Santa Monica. He was 87 years old and he was buried in Los Angeles. Well, this makes me feel silly because I didn't even recognize him as like a famous actor while I was watching this. Oh, I didn't know that he was a famous actor when we were I mean I mean, I partly only picked him because we had already talked about Rosalind Russell and Cary Grant, and I figured we'd be talking about them mostly in this movie, or in this episode, so. I recognized Abner Bieberman better than I recognized Ralph Bellman. Oh, really? Because I don't know who Abner Bieberman is. So, um. I just, he's like one of those character actors that is in everything, everything. but you don't really know who they are, you know? yeah. So, like, um, I don't really, I did not know anything about him. I was just like, oh, that guy. So that's why I picked him. <laughs> so there's not as much about him as you have about Ralph Bellamy, but uh, he was born on April 1st, 1909 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yes, another later, Midwesterner. Well, it gets better because he moved with his family to Philadelphia. Yes. So we've got great connections here on all fronts. Um, he gained early acting experience as a student at the prep school, Tome School, for boys. And then he attended the University of Pennsylvania for college. Wow. So he got his start on Broadway, and he was extremely active in lots of roles from 1934 to 1938. Uh, he appeared in nine plays during that time and was in the original cast of Winterset. And he was a member of the avant-garde group theater company, whose members included Stella Adler, Clifford Odets, and Lee J. Cobb, before he moved to Hollywood as a character actor, which is primarily how I knew him. You might have noticed that he looked sort of like ethnically ambiguous, Mm -hmm. and it seemed like that was a big part of how he was cast. So he was cast in like completely varied roles. He played everyone from a South Seas Islander to an Indian bandit to a Japanese army officer. And, of course, like, this was in the time when people were not actually cast to play. Like, they didn't have people of the actual ethnicity playing roles, so I guess someone like him would have a lot of work. Right. That never happens now. It's fine. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Remember that um, Emma Stone movie where she was supposed to be playing a native to Hawaii? Oh, right. Oh, my God. I forgot about that movie. 
Uh, I I saw a couple minutes of it one time on TV, and it was really bad, and I just turned it off. So. <laughs> well, yeah, um, and recently there's been all that stuff about Scarlett Johansson. Yes, yeah, this is still a problem. Um, people were very upset. They're casting the live-action Aladdin, and people were not happy with the way that turned out either. Yeah. So, um, But so, yeah, Abner had a lot of work, probably would still have work today. Uh, his most memorable roles were as gangsters and convicts, and that's kind of what I've seen him in, is, like, playing these small roles where he's some sort of ne'er-do-well. Uh-huh. Um, and that's what he was in this movie. And then later in life, he had a second career as a TV director, um, and he directed episodes of Gunsmoke and Gilligan's Island. Oh. And uh, I saw they had a New York Times obituary for him, and they actually recognized him as a director first and an actor second. So, huh. I mean, that, that was a big part of his career. And he died at his home in San Diego, California, at age 69 on June 20th, 1977. Wow. So he had quite the career. Banning all of those years. Yeah. We should, like, take so, a... Now that we've seen so many Cary Grant movies, we should, like, <laughs> watch some Ralph Bellamy and Abner movies. Yes. Well, I was... I've always liked the character actors, mm-hmm. and I... I'm interested in that. Like, I feel like that's like, you know, you're making a choice that you don't really, well, some of them probably couldn't get the work they wanted to, but like yeah. you get a chance to work a lot as an actor, but you kind of stay under the radar, which I think is the ideal scenario. Yeah. Okay. So that could be like a, our next ser- our series following our, uh, our series of musicals. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, are you ready to get into the movie? Yes, I am so ready. Have you seen this movie before, right? Oh, yeah, I've seen this a bunch of okay. times. I couldn't remember if we had both. So, this time when you were watching it, what struck you? What was the, like, the first thing that, like, that you noticed in this time watching it? Well, okay, I'll say that three things struck me. The first was how self-possessed Hildy was. Mm-hmm. Like, when she, in the movie, and just, like, how well she carried herself and interacted with everyone for most of the movie. Yeah. The second was that, you know, the way that Walter's character was treating her was really not great. But the third was that, like, I am unable to be objective about this movie. (laughs) So. Yeah. So, because, like, as I was, I don't think this is, like, as hugely problematic as other movies that we've watched but like there is a kind of unhealthy dynamic between the Mm -hmm. two of them but i i love the dialogue of this movie and the chemistry so much that like i could i couldn't rouse myself to like be upset about it yeah (laughs) because i was just like i mean this has come up um, when we did the philadelphia story with Jimmy Stewart, like, I really have a soft spot for journalist characters, Mm -hmm. so, like, a whole movie about, like, a newsroom and, like, getting the scoop and, uh, you know, the sort of, like, love-hate dynamic between them. Like, this is basically, like, Emily Catnip. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean... So, so what about you? I, I mean, I guess, yeah, similarly, I feel like I, like, I am unable to 
to even pretend to be objective about this movie because I have distinct memories of watching this movie when I was at a very impressionable age. I mean, I grew up and my dad, you know, called me Hildegard, you know, and I didn't really have a nickname that stuck. I tried to get my family to call me Hildy. And, you know, I, after I saw this movie, because I was writing, and then I was, you know, eventually, like, worked on my high school newspaper, and I just wanted to be Hildy Johnson when I grew up. For all of the reasons that you you said that she was, you know, f- smart and a good writer and was holding her own among these guys and, you know, and, and figuring out the angle for the story and, like, you know, strategic, you know, like, that's what I remember of her, that was that she was this, like, strong female character, and what I realized watching the movie this time was, like, okay, yes, actually, Cary Grant's character is kind of a jerk to her, but there's way more racism, like, overt racism embedded in the dialogue than I remembered, so that was, like, another thing that we could talk about. But, you know, I... This sort of, like, jumps to the end of the movie. Hildy, like, puts her head down on the table and she's crying. You know, Walter is just like, you know, what did I do to make you cry? And she says, I thought you didn't love me anymore. And I was like, oh, maybe this entire time she, like, subconsciously was, you know, like, going along. Like, it was, like, it worked out so easily for Walter because, like, subconsciously she came back you know, because she didn't want to be divorced from him anymore, and she actually, like, she wanted to be married to him, and she doesn't, like, hate this, you know, the life of being, like, the wife of the editor and the reporter as much as she says that she does. So that was... Yeah, I mean, uh, that... Yeah, the ending is very important in this movie. Yeah. I think. And I actually went back and rewatched the ending, like, a second time. Yeah. Just to catch that, but... It did, it sort of implied that, like, the entire thing was just them sort of almost, like, playing a game with each other. Mm-hmm. Because, like, for most of the movie that you're you're thinking, you know, Hildy really does want to leave the business and, like, marry this guy. But in the end, it's kind of like, does she really? Did she really want that? Or was this just, you know, was it just that their way of like coming back to each other. I, I and it's not really clear to me which was true. Yeah. Well, cuz she clearly I think she dis- it didn't take very long for her to like rediscover that she, you know, loved writing and they clearly and like covering a story and they are clearly portraying her as being a good writer and a good reporter and that, you know, as much as Walter Burns is clearly bullshitting her by saying like, "Oh, you're the only writer we have, you're the only reporter we have who can cover the story." And she knows that he's probably bullshitting her because, you know, she figures it out quickly that like this line that he gives her about this other reporter having twins or triplets, I can't remember. She figures out pretty quickly that, like, oh, he can't possibly be having twins because he just got married four months ago. I think in some ways she, like, is torn. I guess many of us are torn. That she, like, wants to be both a, like, traditional woman, whatever that means, and have the the comforts and the, like, systemic sexism. Um, but also... <laughs> But also, like, have a career and be fulfilled in that way, too. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk to you about the gender stuff in this movie because, I mean, that is, like, one interpretation is that this whole thing was just, you know, them playing games with each other and then they got back together. But if we are to believe that, like, 
something about this insurance salesman and like the life he could offer her appeals to Hildy, then the resolution is really incomplete mm -hmm. for this movie because like especially in the earlier part of the film, there's a lot of uh language in the dialogue where she keeps saying like I want you to treat me like a woman mm -hmm. and he keeps saying you're a newspaper man yeah and he can't just say like you're a journalist he has to say you're a newspaper man so it's almost like he is taking away her gender mm -hmm. and then she wants to be seen as a woman it like, she wants some sort of work-life balance, it mm -hmm. seems like. Like, she's complaining that they tried to go on a honeymoon, it ended up being a work trip. And, like, even the whole time we see them on this movie, they're just, like, obsessively working. And, right. Like, yelling into the telephone mm -hmm. and stuff. And she doesn't want that to be her whole life, but in the end, that's all he can offer her. Right. So, it doesn't really seem resolved. <laughs> I know. But I just thought, like... It was surprising to me how modern that felt in a mm -hmm. way that she was both like wanting to have the career. She enjoys her dynamic with him as her editor and like the respect that she gets as a professional, but she also wants to be treated in a way that's like, like she's still kind of a lady and like they can take breaks from work or like, you know, maybe they'll have a family. And it, like, I, it, I feel like people are still having the same conversation constantly. <laughs> As we were talking, I was thinking about the backstory of, you know, she she comes in when she, at the beginning of the movie, to tell Walter that she's, you know, quitting and she's getting married again. But they haven't seen each other in four months because she had to go to Reno to get the divorce from him. And then, so she had this four, these four months where she, you know, was, like, entirely removed from her, like, normal life in order to get this divorce. And so she, she had, like, a break from that work schedule and a break from this guy. And the, in the rare moments where I've managed to have, like, extended periods away from work, like, I get this moment of, like, oh, this is what I really want to do. Sometimes it's not, like, entirely, no, I don't want to say it's not entirely accurate, but, like, I forget about the things that I really like about the, you know, the work that I'm doing or the real life that I am in. And then just are like, I'm just, I'm like, oh, well, I you know, have to change everything. Or you get used to, like, whatever. I've never been away from somewhere, from my real life for four months. So I don't, <laughs> I've, never, yeah. I've never been to Reno. So. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I, I used to have, because I was in several long distance relationships when I was younger, I was probably not made well for that type of situation because I would, like, sort of forget why I liked the person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I would see them again, and it would take me a little while to remember, oh, yeah, like, this is why I like this person. But, like, yeah, I think it's, I mean, it could have been the same with her and Walter. Yeah. Because she was ready to, and, like, they got into their rhythm and mm -hmm. dynamic, and then it's you know, clearly sizzling, unlike poor Ralph Bellamy over there being a sap. Yeah. Although I like that, you know, he, Walter, like, bamboozles them to go out to lunch so that he can, you know, work up this job for her. And, you know, there's Walter and and Bruce are talking, and, you know, Bruce is just going on about how smart Hildy is and how he doesn't really think that she should be giving up this job. And I, my note is that I just love... I love that Bruce totally appreciates that Hildy is on both unpredictable and smart. So he, like, it's like he gets who she is, 
and wishes that she, she he could like help her like continue to be that but he's also like acknowledging oh she doesn't want to be that anymore so like that's fine too oh yeah he was a stand-up guy through the whole movie i mean how many times was he arrested for some stupid thing yeah and he didn't even get mad about any of them i mean he gets mad at the end kind of where he's like i'm leaving i'm gonna be on the nine o'clock train <laughs> bye but even at that point he says like if you change your mind come like he doesn't cut off the relationship that's true he's giving her the choice yeah. and he is supportive of her but I mean, you could just see in the scenes where all three of them are there, it's like Hildy and Walter are operating on a different plane mm -hmm. than he is. Yeah. Like, they're, all of their dialogue has, like, a double meaning, and he doesn't understand the second meeting. He's just, like, on a yeah. basic level. Yeah. So true. What did you... Um, what did you think about how shrewd Hildy was as a businesswoman, like, throughout the whole movie? She, well, she knows Walter well enough to know he's going to try to, like, stiff them. Mm -hmm. And she, the whole time, is, like, managing everything to try to take care of her and Bruce. Yeah. And she even, like, insists, like, of what they're going to get paid and, like, tries to take care of them when she thinks that they're still going to be getting married. Yeah, I, it's impressive. Yeah, I thought so too. I was I was glad to see a movie where there was a professional woman openly talking about money mm -hmm. and asking for more, which you still don't even see that much today. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I like that she's not only not only managing her own finances, but saying like, you know, don't stiff my fiance for you know his commission that he's supposed to get on this the insurance policy that we're, he's taking out on you. I mean, that's, like, where the balance comes in, where she says, I will write the story if you if you do this thing for Bruce. Um, so it's, like, both work and personal. Doesn't work out very well, yeah. but... <laughs> <laughs> One small thing that I really liked was that it shows that Hildy and Walter know everyone. Like, when Hildy first comes into the newsroom, mm -hmm. she's greeting every... She greets every single person by name. Yeah. And then all the other journalists, like, down at the police station, she knows well. And then even when they go to the restaurant, she and Walter know the waiter. Mm -hmm. And I liked that it showed, like, a certain amount of respect for everyone. Mm -hmm. Like, she was very collegial with everybody. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was just a nice detail that showed a lot about her personality. Yeah, whether by necessity or by, you know, wanting to be that way she she knew everybody's name and you know was friendly with them so what did you think about the gender dynamic of walter as the male editor marrying hildy the female journalist who's like he's basically her boss yeah i mean she says that when you know, when she finally says you know at the beginning what she's come to tell him she she says, you are no longer my husband and no longer my boss. It was just like, oh, you probably shouldn't have married your boss. <laughs> like, your, your boss shouldn't have, have like, in, agreed to marry you when he was your boss. Like, that's not, like, it's not going to work out. <laughs> that's mostly what uh, I think about it. Did you think he... <laughs> Did you think that Walter was really in love with Hildy? First thought is, how could you not be in love with Hildy when she's obviously yeah. so smart and, like, you know, she's got her, she's a tough cookie and, you know, like, good at her job. So how could you not want to be with her? 
in whatever way that whatever form that takes yeah it's it was hard to sometimes I felt like the wires were a little crossed between like does he want to just keep her as a journalist or yeah is he really in love with her and I think the final scene is trying to say that he is in love with her but it wasn't really clear in other parts of the movie to me at least yeah no I think there are moments in the I remember at the end of the movie I was like wait is he actually in love with her is he in love with her because if he's in love with her then maybe this is okay that he's not just being like a jerk boss that won't let her like slip out of his fingers this is the second Cary Grant movie that we've watched that is a remarriage plot. Oh, yeah. Where there's, like, questionable manipulation going on. <laughs> and then in both of those movies, Cary Grant, in the final scenes, just basically dictates to, a, you know, dictates, like, oh, and we're getting married again without, like, asking the woman or, like, talking about <laughs> <laughs> But she's already, in, oh. in in his defense in this movie, she has already said, you know, I thought you didn't love me anymore. I thought you were, like, trying to get rid of me. And you weren't going to, I thought you would weren't going to try to keep me. And he's like, no, I, you know, I, I want to keep you. So it's like they, like, they, they have sort of, you know, a roundabout conversation about that. But he's also then still her boss and her husband. So that's still problematic. Well, I wrote down that this movie is basically what happens when two obsessive careerists marry. Yes. <laughs> and in the very end, like, they're supposed to be going on the honeymoon, and then it turns out there's a strike, and they were like, well, we could just go cover the strike on the way. Yeah. So there's basically, it's basically the same thing. Speaking of strikes, this is sort of a, a run in the other direction and towards the idea of, like, social justice in, in the movies that we watch, but... I I never noticed in watching this movie before the number of times that the, the so there's there are a couple of scenes between the governor and or not the governor the um, sheriff and the mayor where they're talking about how the hang this hanging of this you know, this this guy who shoots a black police officer this white guy who shoots the black police officer they have to hang him because otherwise the mayor is going to lose his election. We talk about a storyline that like has a lot to say about our current political climate. The sheriff and the mayor are going back and forth about these these communist uprisings that they are certain are going to happen right after the, these protests that are going to happen as soon as they hang him. And you know, and so it's it's funny that like the end of the movie is you know that they're gonna go cover this protest. It's like a totally, <laughs> in some ways, a totally different world, but also like this is where we are in the world right now. Yeah, uh, yeah. I didn't remember, even though I've seen this movie several times. I mean, the, they do speak so quickly that it's hard to catch everything. Yeah. But I didn't remember that detail about it being a black police officer and them being worried about losing the black vote. Yeah. I think I wouldn't have, if, if I had heard it in previous times watching this movie, I wouldn't have noticed it. and It wouldn't have resonated in the way that it, it does does now. Yeah, I, there is a lot of corruption. I mean, this movie, like, as much as it is a journalism movie, 
it does not really paint journalists in a super flattering light, with the exception of Hildy. But yeah. pretty much all of them are just making stuff up yeah. through most of the movie. And then it depicts politicians as terrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, they get a reprieve for this guy from the governor, and then they're just like, you know what? You never got it, <laughs> and we're going to give you a job in the in the local government. That that character was funny. He just kept being like, my wife. Yeah. <laughs> it was very, like, Sasha Baron Cohen. Totally. My wife. <laughs> it's totally. Yeah, the 2019 version of this movie would have Sasha Baron Cohen in it. <laughs> <laughs> I totally had forgotten about the mayor, the whole, the whole line with the governor and the reprieve and the, you know, the colored, the quote-unquote colored vote and uh, being so important and the, you know, the guy who's been laid off from his job and, you know, the communist protesters and I had forgotten about the whole, all of the political element of this movie. But there were, when I was doing some research, I, there were a couple of articles that I saw that, you know, resolutely said, you know, this movie doesn't actually represent newspaper culture at that time. It, like, it's not an accurate at all depiction of what newspaper men were like um, in the 1930s and 1940s, which I don't know if that's reassuring or disappointing to me. I don't know. I mean, it did seem more like from the era of yellow journalism yeah. than it seemed like, you know, 1940. I have so much respect for the free press as like a really important part of democracy that I was a little sad to see most of the journalists depicted as so corrupt in this movie. Right. Yeah, that they're, like, making up the details as they're, like, basically dictating what's happening to Williams, the, you know, the convicted murderer who's been caught in the reporter room on the phone. They're, like, they all have, like, five different stories about what what he's actually doing. Yeah, (laughs) that was pretty hilarious. I mean, that's one bad thing about the fact that the dialogue was so fast was that a lot of the lines were really funny, but, like, you didn't have a lot of time to react to them before something else was happening. Yeah. Although, like, I, you can... Now that you've said that, um, that Rosalind Russell was getting help from an ad salesman, there were lines like, so long, wage slaves, and... Which I was like, huh. I didn't forget about it. And she says, scram Svengali to, to Walter Burns. But, yeah, it was so fast that, you know, it was hard to, like, write down my favorite lines. She says... She says at some point, any news, boys? And one of the reporters says, yes, I've, yeah, I've never been so tired in my life. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> um, yeah, I will say that this movie had a number of lines where I really laughed out loud. I, I think most of them were Cary Grant lines, actually. <laughs> but some of it, like, the physical acting was really good in this, too. Like, his face and mannerisms and Hildy's were great yeah yeah I was like watching this late at night and like laughing out loud alone like in the dark in my house I was like I'm probably really sounding creepy if anyone happened to be walking by but (laughs) yeah no they would see you watching this movie and they would know why I really have a soft spot for that kind of fast dialogue and a lot of my favorite TV shows also use that. And I think one of the reasons I like it is because, like, it packs in so much cleverness yep. that you can get a lot out of rewatching it. Like, I also... And I think you're you're a fan of The West Wing also, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, I mean, certain things about The West Wing did not age well, but, like, they... You can rewatch that and get more out of it. I feel that way about Gilmore Girls. I watch that, like, tons of times. And I still, like... 
years later, I'm like, oh, this is the first time I got that reference. <laughs> so. Yeah, totally. How did you, how, would, there were so many scenes where people were on the telephone, and we talked a little bit about telephone acting with the women, but there were a couple of scenes where Walter and um, Hildy are on the phone at the same time talking to different, like, they're having two different conversations. I don't know, what did you think about that? In that, in the whole, like, figuring out dialogue and <laughs> fast-paced back and forth. It gives me more respect for them as actors, because I think those scenes must have been really difficult to do. Because, you know, like, they must have been imagining the other half of the conversation. Yeah. And then also trying to pace it so that it worked well with the other person mm-hmm. being, you know, their dialogue being on the phone, too. I think that must have been really hard. Yeah. Oh, beautiful girl. What a gorgeous creature. Beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher. What can I do but give my heart to you? Should we talk about the costumes? Yes, please. And by costumes, I hope you mean Hildy Johnson's hat. Yes. She had, like, more than one good hat in this movie. and She just looked fabulous yeah. all the time. Yes. Well, and she had, like, various stripes. In the beginning, she is wearing that striped hat, and then she has the striped suit on, and she just was such a classy, and it it was like a good mix of um, like feminine and also you know business suit that I'm gonna wear to the office the way that all the guys do, all the newspaper men. Yeah, she looked professional and stylish, and I do think that like the whole outfit that she's wearing in the opening is iconic at this point. Mm-hmm. Like I. Could not see an outfit like that and not think of this movie. Yeah. Um, there are two other women in this movie that I don't think we've mentioned yet. One is Molly Malloy, the um, supposed girlfriend of this woman that the reporters are painting as the girlfriend of the guy who's condemned to, to death. And then uh, Hildy Johnson's future mother-in-law, who I don't know if she's supposed to be well-to-do, but she certainly acts well-to-do. And so Molly is a like a lower... Is she a waitress? I can't remember. I don't remember. I for some reason I was thinking that she was supposed to be a prostitute. Oh, oh. And that's why they all treated her so badly. Maybe I'm making that up. Hmm. Well, I can't remember what she was. So, <laughs> but she's definitely like lower class, and the like future mother-in-law is supposed to be like upper class, right? Yeah. And their their outfits are their their costumes are so different, of course, because of that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, she. Molly Malloy definitely looked like she was in cheaper clothes, mm-hmm. and the mother-in-law looked so, like, stiff and hoity-toity. I know. So when they throw over her, their shoulders to carry her out, she's, yeah, totally humiliated. It's fantastic. Yes. Maybe we, uh, we'll get into this with the social justice, but, um, there were, like, a number of, like, somewhat violent things that were sort of, like, played for laughs in this movie. <laughs> Yes. Like, uh, I mean, it's a comedy. Yes. The window. She jumps out a window. And I was like, I I hadn't remembered that part. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like, and then they were like, oh, is she dead? She's not dead. And none of the journalists care about any of this stuff. They're just kind of like, oh, this will be great for the story. Right. Like, that's it. Right. Um, And then the mother-in-law is in an accident because she was kidnapped and like then they're like oh she might be dead 
and like nobody cares. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are we gonna do? Although at that point, I wonder if like Hildy has been so much and been through so much in the day that she's just like, I gotta, I can't, like, I gotta just catalog all the catastrophes and I can't respond to all. Of them. I mean, that's fair. She does seem like pretty. Uh, traumatized and worn out by the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> we all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each What other's. did did you think of the social justice aspect? I mean, so the the like the premise of this movie is that they're covering the the night before Earl Williams, this man, is going to be hanged. And for this crime that you know, he may or may not have, that he committed, but may or may not, like, actually be guilty of, because maybe he wasn't in his right mind when he committed it, and it seemed like such, um, a crime for, like, the present time, which we talked about a little bit, that, and just the idea of, like, capital punishment, um, and, you know, a death row, I don't know, I was thinking about those, I hadn't really, like, connected those to this movie before watching this and I'm curious what you may have to say about it because I know you have experience working with you know people who have who are have been on death row I mean the movie doesn't treat it with the seriousness that I would like for this kind of issue yeah but it I did appreciate that Hildy and even um Bruce says at one point like if you if if it's a man's life, yeah. like you, and you can do something about it, you should do it. So it kind of seems like she's doing like activist journalism, mm-hmm. but then it's not like it kind. And in the end, it doesn't seem like they care about him all that much. So I was like kind of confused about that. But like to your point, the death penalty is very serious and ongoing issue in the United States and there are still people being executed who have serious mental illnesses and or extremely low IQs. Not on a daily basis, but I would say on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. Like if you, it's really, if you look up the statistics, it's really sad. And actually, in the news right now, a lot of pharmaceutical companies are fighting the states where the death penalty is legal because they don't want their drugs used in the cocktails that are used to execute the people. So um, a lot of states are now having issues with actually performing the executions, and they're passing laws so that they can use backup methods, which are much more like this. Like, one state passed one that they can use firing squad. Yeah. Another passed one that they can use the electric chair. So, like, those seem very antiquated, but that's, like, the direction that the country's going in because the drug companies don't want to be affiliated with their drugs killing people. (laughs) Yeah. Huh. So, I mean, all of that is to say that, like, that plot line and, like, the, the political reasoning behind whether or not he was being executed is totally spot on. Like, there's no rhyme or reason to, like, who gets the death penalty and who doesn't based on the crime. So much of it is just, like, who's running for Mm re-election, who has money and who doesn't. And uh, it's sadly still very much skewed like it was for the guy in this movie. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, a little bit terrifying that at the beginning of the movie, we know that that the governor has issued a reprieve. But the, you know, the corrupt sheriff and the corrupt 
mayor are just, you know, they're like, oh, we, we need to, <laughs> we need to execute this guy because, you know, there's an election on Tuesday. And everyone, uh, you know, all the reporters, you know, openly acknowledge that, like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of corruption in this city, you know, because there's, and there's an election coming up, so who knows what's going to happen. But nobody does anything to, like, change it. Although I guess Hildy, you, you, like, one interpretation is Hildy wants to change, do something about it because she does try to write an article. I mean, she rips the article up, so I don't know. <laughs> I thought one of the most subtle and interesting scenes in the movie was the scene where Heldy interviews mm-hmm. the guy, mm-hmm. and she basically is creating a scenario where he will be declared insane and could get, you know, mm-hmm. um, have his sentence commuted. Mm-hmm. But she does it in such like a subtle way where she's just kind of suggesting to him and being really gentle with him mm-hmm. that like, I thought that showed good character on her part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, to me, it showed a lot of sympathy for Earl Williams, the, the man who is in jail, and also showed that she actually, for all the, like, running around that she was doing and, like, jabbering with the newspaper men, showed that she was, a like, a good interviewer. Like, she wanted to figure out, like, a way to help this guy, and the only way that she could help him was to, like, do exactly what you said. I think with that, if you, like, read that scene that way, that there is a social justice message in the movie. Mm-hmm. And they do sort of root out corruption, too, with, like, the political officials. Yeah. Um, but it, the majority of the characters are pretty bad in this movie, and most of the corruption is not fixed, but a little bit is. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they end up saving, you know, in a roundabout way, saving Earl Williams' life because it turns out that, you know, the guy with the reprieve comes back from the governor and says to the, to the mayor and the sheriff... You know, it turns out in front of these two reporters, look, I don't feel comfortable, you know, pretending that I never showed up. And the reporters are like, wait, what? What is this Mm. story that you're handing us? And, you know, so just by being the free press, they are basically saying to, you know, to the government, like, you know, we're holding you accountable for your actions. We don't even have to write anything. We just, like, it's the threat of us being able to disclose this information. You know, it ends up saving the guy's life without ever having to print a word. It's just just the threat of it. Yeah. I mean, isn't it sad that in this case, the reason he wasn't executed was just, like, the small chance of someone being unwilling to take a bribe? Right. (laughs) Yeah. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. What did you think in terms of the Bechdel test with this movie? There's a a couple of exchanges that Hildy has with Molly Malone. Molly comes in and is talking to the newspaper men, and the newspaper men are giving her a hard time, and Hildy, meanwhile, is trying to, like, bang out this story. And, you know, at some point she, like, gets up and is like, Molly, we're going to, like, you know, you're upset, we're going to go you know, get out of here, and Molly says, you know, they're not human, and she says, I know, I know, they're, they're newspaper men, but that's, like, you know, like, every other, in, they don't really have any other real interaction, and then the only other woman in this movie is the mother-in-law, or the future mother-in-law. Yeah, it, I think, you know, despite a couple of the conversations, that it doesn't really pass. Mm-mm. I mean, it might pass technically, but I don't, like, 
there there really is only one developed female character, right. and that's Hildy. Well, and I think this is a rare movie where the it's not that it doesn't. Well, I guess Tra- Charger of Sierra Madre and you know do- doesn't pass the Bechdel test because there are no women. But this this doesn't pass pass the Bechdel test, even though there is one strong female character, and they like she isn't always talking about like marrying this guy, or she kind of is, but it's mostly about this like about writing the story and and also marrying this guy, but it's not. It's not just all all getting married all the time. Yeah, she just I mean, has no other women to have this conversation with. Yeah, well, and she's in a male dominated profession, yeah. so there's no one really around. And most of the time, it's very focused on the story. Yeah, but you know, it is still all like talking to men and about men. Yeah, which I mean says something about the journalism field at that time. Well, and today still too, right? Because the newspaper business or like whatever that is called right now. Um, is that still dominantly male? <laughs> um, I think it's still dominated by white men, but it, you know, it's a lot better than it was. Yeah. In Philly, there are a lot of women com- columnists and columnists of color, which is good. Yeah. Do we want to say anything more about the title and the idea of a girl Friday? Now that we're talking about the Bechdel test. <laughs> I liked the idea of the Girl Friday better before I knew the explanation of what it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea of a Girl Friday who's a sidekick, but I don't like the idea of a Girl Friday who's, like, like a servant. Yeah, who's a dog's body. Yeah. And I have heard it used, like, in other pop culture references, and it's usually when someone's, like, an assistant or something. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's not great. No. It's... I think it might be my one of my least favorite things about this movie is the title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, most favorite is probably when Cary Grant in his like beautiful suit says, Madam, are you referring to <laughs> <laughs> We're definitely posting that gif on Twitter. Again. Because oh. we've done it before. <laughs> It makes me so happy. I mean, he he is like vibrating charisma. Yeah. In this movie, yes, he is. <laughs> what rating would you give this movie, knowing that we cannot be objective about it because of his charisma? I'm gonna give it a three and a half, mm-hmm. and here's why. But like most of what I like about the movie is the dialogue and the repartee between Hildy and Walter. I'm not as crazy about... I know this is, like, going against type, but, like, I actually don't like screwball comedies that much. <laughs> <laughs> so... I'm very surprised so, like, to hear the, that, actually. Like, a lot of times they just annoy me because I'm like, look, if you guys just, like, talk to each other, you could just make sensible decisions. And that <laughs> It doesn't happen. Then it wouldn't be but a like, movie, the, Emily. <laughs> I know. But, like, the hiding, the guy in the desk and everything. Like, as the movie escalates and gets, like, more ridiculous, I kind of, you know, my patience lessens. <laughs> so I would rather it just be, like, Hildy and Walter, like, flirting a lot. Yeah. And, you know, running around the newsroom. So that's why I'm at three and a half. Like, 
fabulous leads, really well written. You know, I could do with less um, hiding people in death. Oh my gosh. So what about you? I think I think I might have to give it a three and a half as well, but for different reasons. I love screwball comedies, so I liked all of that part. The like running around, the like scr- the scrambling to like to get this story together, and that that every turn there was like another like twist to it. I also think that this was a very perfectly structured movie where, you know, you get to the halfway point and the, like, and Earl Williams breaks out of the, his cell and, you know, the movie takes an entirely different turn. And then, you know, at the three quarters mark, he, you know, there's another, like, another twist to it. And, you know, so I appreciated that structure that was so perfect and appreciated the really good dialogue. This time watching it, I we didn't talk really about the like any of the super overtly racist language that that came up in talking about they, somebody used the phrase "pickaninny" to refer to like an African American kid, which like is of course oh. entirely of the time that this movie was made, and so this is totally like a pre- presentist like like this is terrible. But I don't know, like I think that part of it shouldn't stand up. That you know, and doesn't stand up right now. I think I'm a little bit disappointed in that, and disappointed in the like what we talked about, where you know he 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 doesn't treat her very well. He treats her like his girl Friday instead of like an equal. So some of like the gender and racial politics just sort of yeah, agreed. So I think we're still at the only movie we've ever given five stars to is All About Eve. I think you're right. Which you know, fair. I mean, yes. Um, what, what movie are we doing next time? Uh, we're taking a very different turn, Mm -hmm. and we're going to be discussing Gidget, which is perfect for end of summer. That's right. Uh, so if you want to hear about Moondoggy and Kahuna, then come see us. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what those words mean yet, but I will. (laughs) May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.